exam week full of midterms, and uh, you are not exempt from that today, because tonight we have yet another exam. Tonight there's an exam that will take place in this room. There will be two questions. You see, we're, we're not only midway through the semester, we're midway through the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus will actually examine his men, uh, just how much they understand. We've been asking three questions this semester, and we actually could ask talk about all three tonight. We're just going to talk about two. Uh, We've been asking, who is Jesus, what's he about, and why did he die? And tonight, uh, Jesus is going to talk about two of these things, and we'll get partial answers to, to all these. And it'll be interesting to see not only how they do, uh, but maybe how you're doing as well with, with these questions. Riley's read the text for us, so let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump in. Hey, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and study your word, Lord, outside of the work uh, of Jesus on our behalf and the work of the Spirit in our lives. These are, these are just nice uh, accounts of things that were done a long time ago that might not mean much to us. So we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would show us yourself in these words, in these uh, texts, and we pray, Holy Spirit, you would press these things into reality in our lives. Help us to see you clearly. Help us see our need for you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. About half my life ago, about this time of the year, I suspect, I was taking a midterm exam, or about to. It was a history class, and uh, the professor was a really nice guy. I really liked him, but uh, we had heard that his exams were uh, well, quite the experience. And he warned us ahead of time that we needed to pay careful attention, and he did a good job of making clear everything that we sort of needed to know. He put all the terms up and taught through them. He was a, he was a great teacher. And so about a week out of the exam, he, uh, he, he sort of prepped us for the exam. He said, you need to plan uh, to take three to five hours for this midterm. You, you need to forget about finishing early and even going home early. Uh, you need to, for, don't forget, uh, please don't forget to bring two to three blue books. I don't know if y'all still use those or not. You know, they're test-taking booklets. They have about 15 pages of paper in them. Uh, so bring two or three of those, the implication being you're going to write about 40 pages. And uh, two or three pens or pencils, because it's possible you're going to use all of them. And uh, so he adequately scared the daylights out of us. And then he started talking about the format of the test, and it's like, well, you know, the first 15 or 20 will be matching. We're like, matching? Awesome. Like, yeah, he's, just, he's just acting like this is going to be a hard exam. And then it's going to be like five fill-in-the-blanks, or five short explanations, two or three sentences each. I'm like, oh, okay, great. Matching, fill-in-the-blanks, I can do that. It's great. Yeah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And then he said, then there'll be two essays. Okay. I can write essays. The first essay I like to call the mother of all essays. Uh, prepare yourself for some suffering. And uh, we sort of looked around and we're like, did he say the mother of all essays? Yeah, he said the mother of all essays. The second essay I call the essay from hell. <laughs> and he, he wasn't kidding. It took four hours. Um, it was quite the exam. And it, it made clear to me, and it stood as a, a reminder ever since then, that... Uh, Tests are, are hard for different reasons, and different kinds of tests are, are difficult uh, based on how they're administered. And Jesus is about to give a, a midterm exam to his disciples, and they may get the matching right or even the fill-in-the-blank, but when it comes to the essay, to actually demonstrate their in-depth knowledge of who Jesus is, they're not prepared. They show their lack of understanding. Uh, they, don't, they don't get it still. We're going to see Peter in our, in our text tonight. Uh, as regards the person of Jesus, he sort of passes the Sunday school version of the exam. Yeah, I know who you are. 
But then when he's pressed for more information, or uh, when he gets an explanation he doesn't like, he shows this fundamental misunderstanding of who Jesus is. And I I think we're like that sometimes uh, as regards the person of Jesus. And the consequences aren't just academic. Uh, we'll, we'll see that. There's, there's confrontation, there's a failure to follow him uh, faithfully. Because the reality is we won't really faithfully give ourselves to someone and follow them unless we really know who they are or we're deluded. Um, but if we're in our right minds, until, unless we really know who they are and what they're about. That's the case here as well. So tonight we're going to see, and it's very simple if you have your outlines, we're going to see that Jesus is a suffering king. And this is going to answer two questions we're asking, or have been asking all semester. Who is Jesus and why did he die? And uh, the answers we're giving here tonight are provisional. That doesn't mean they're wrong, but there's more information to come. Uh, We're only halfway through the book. So keep that in mind as we go. The first question is, who is Jesus? And uh, we've come to a point in our text. Jesus has done all kinds of remarkable things uh, in all kinds of remarkable places. And now he's in Caesarea Philippi, which is far, far to the north, barely in the realm of his own country, touching on foreign lands. And the city, named after two pagan kings, Caesar and King Philip. It's very interesting. And it's there that Jesus finally asks his men, who do you think I am? They've been following him for some time. We're not really clear how long. But for most of his ministry up to this point. And he he sort of gives them a softball to begin with. You know, maybe the the matching or the uh, version of uh, sort of a warm-up on the exam. He asks... Who, who do people say I am? In verse 29. And this is just sort of like pub, polling for public opinion. Have you, have you paid attention? Have you listened? Who do people say that I am? And, and their answers are very interesting. They're both sensational and limited. Uh, you're John the Baptist. And that's interesting because John's dead. So people are saying, this is John raised from the dead. That's remarkable. It's sensational. Or Elijah. Well, Elijah's been gone for hundreds and hundreds of years. These are sensational answers. Um, But it's also limited, because they conclude with, or one of the prophets. And all three of these men are great prophets. John the Baptist and Elijah and prophets are obviously prophets. And it's limited, because Jesus is a prophet. He comes and speaks God's word clearly. But he's doing more than that. He's doing more than a prophet has ever really done. So it's sensational and limited. And it's not adequate, because Jesus wants to know more than just the public opinions. He he presses and asks, in verse 29, Who do you say that I am? You yourselves. I want to know who you think I am. And I'm sure these men that have followed him for some time, that have seen him do remarkable work, that have uh, probably laid in open fields with him at night, you know, as they're going from place to place, and uh, slept under the stars, and seen him do remarkable things, they've probably asked themselves this question over and over. We left everything way back there. And we've been following this guy around. We've seen him do crazy stuff that scares us to death, like calming storms and feeding 5,000 people. Who is he? And they haven't given an answer yet. And so Jesus asked the question, who do you say I am? In verse 28. And uh, Peter asks, or responds, you are the Christ. And uh, the word the Christ means one who's anointed, and there are actually three different kinds of people in the Bible that are anointed, prophet, priests, and kings. But when Jesus, when Peter responds with, you are the Christ, he's talking about the kingly function. He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about one in particular, the anointed one that was promised by God. It's been promised since the beginning, that one person would come from the line of Abraham, that would be the spearhead of God's restoration movement, he would be a son of David, a king, 
and he would restore God's people. He would be the great shepherd that would go seek his lost sons and daughters. He would rule them. He would restore them. He would guard them. He would love them. And they've been waiting for this person for a long, 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 long time. It's a gutsy answer. It's one of those things you never take back. You can't say, you're, you're the great promised king and say, oh, maybe, maybe not. Sort of like proposing and saying, oh, actually, I didn't mean it. <laughs> I didn't mean that slip out. Um, Peter's saying, you're the most significant human being that's ever lived. That's what he's saying. And uh, the shorthand of this is that Jesus is the king. Now, for Jesus to actually accept this response, which he does, and it's sort of strange the way he accepts it. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he doesn't say, no, you're wrong. Never say that. It's significant. Uh, because this is, again, only filled by one person in history. Uh, they've been waiting for him forever. And uh, if you're wrong, uh, and you, you take this title, and you're not the king, this is treason. right? The claim to be a king that you're really not is treacherous and treason. In this case, it's treachery against God. Uh, it would actually make you a bad person. It would make you an usurper. And if you're sane, if you're in your right mind and you're not a king, you don't pretend to be a king. That kind of thing gets you killed, especially in the ancient world. So a good man, or a sensible man, if they're not the Christ, would say, uh, no, 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 I'm sorry, Peter. Uh, you got it all wrong. Um, no, you're, you're, I'm somebody else. But Jesus doesn't do that. And it really presses each of us to have to wrestle with who Jesus is. Is he the king, the great king, the Christ, the promised one? Or is he a madman or a bad man? And again, he can't be the one thing that people say he is, which is a great teacher. Just a great moral teacher. That's what we even think today, most of us. Public opinion polls is, Jesus was a great moral teacher. A great moral teacher wouldn't allow someone to call him the great promised king if he wasn't. So he either is what he is, the, the anointed, the Messiah. Or he's a bad man, or a crazy man. Well, uh, Jesus' response isn't a wholehearted embrace, at least not in Mark. You got it. Great, congratulations. Balloons fall down, confetti, give them the prize. Um, uh, instead, it's, it's sort of a muted response. He's, maybe not muted. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Strange. We've been waiting for you for a thousand years. You're the head of God's reclamation project, right? You've come to set everything right. Let's go. And Jesus is like, shh, quiet. And we're going to find that uh, that's necessary because Jesus needs to do some corrective work. Uh, what we have here so far is that Peter has answered the, the fill-in-the-blank question. But when, he, when it's time for uh, Jesus to start filling in his knowledge of what it means to be the king, the Christ, the Messiah, Peter is sorely lacking. And I had uh, Riley read verses 22 to 26, this really strange uh, episode in Bethsaida. It's strange because Jesus is doing a, a, something completely different. If you remember, he like fed people easily. 5,000 people just sort of broke it off. He, he walked on water. He calmed the storm. He healed people with a word. He's raised the dead with a word. We didn't read that. And here, he starts to heal someone, and it doesn't seem to work. Uh, this is what possibly some folks might call the yips. You know, you sort of lose your touch. Anyone ever heard the yips? 
golfers get this. Mr. Webster would be familiar with this. You, you, you lose the ability. You lose the touch to do what you're really good at. Surgeons get this too. Uh, and, you, and you just can't do it. Has Jesus got a case of the yips? Because <laughs> you, you, you didn't get it right the first time. And so he does it a second time. And the man's restored. What's, what's, what's up with that? And I think what we have here is a living parable ahead of the fact that the disciples don't get it. In the section right before this, and we didn't read it, it's clear the disciples don't get it. Jesus actually says, y'all, y'all still don't understand, do you? you? You don't understand. You've been with me this whole time, and you don't understand. And I think what he has here is a living parable before them. You, you are like this man. You see me a little bit. You, you know I'm something significant, but you don't get it. it you don't have a clear vision of me. And as Jesus goes about the work of correcting this man's blurry vision, he's about to do the same thing with Peter. Yeah, you sort of see that I'm significant, I'm sort of the Christ, but you have no idea what that means. Let me show you. Let me fix that for you. And he goes on to describe that Jesus, that he himself, is the suffering king. In verse 31 he says, he began, or the text tells us, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. A couple of really interesting things here. Uh, we were talking about the Christ one minute ago, the promised one, the anointed. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's, that's me. And then immediately he starts talking about the Son of Man. Who's this guy? Who's the Son of Man? I mean, that might be the natural response, but Jesus has already called himself the Son of Man. And when he's done so in the past, it's always been tied to some remarkable authority he has. The first time he called himself the Son of Man, he claimed to have the ability to forgive sins, and he backed it up by healing a man, a paralytic who walked out. The next time he claimed to be the Son of Man, he had the authority to uh, basically reconstitute the law of the Sabbath and other religious activities like fasting around himself. He claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus claimed to be the center of everything, basically, when he claimed to be the Son of Man. And here he's saying, I'm the Son of Man, and you need to know that I'm going to die. And I'm not just going to die some tragic death. Actually, it's going to be a judgment by your religious leaders. The people in power. They're going to kill me. It'll be a public condemnation. That's the way these things work. Um, he will be a suffering king. I need to stop for a second before we go any further and uh, pose Jesus' question to you. Who do you, you yourself, say that he is? He, he asked that question in the, sh- in the sharpest possible personal way. And I think it's... The, I think it's the intellectual, not just the spiritual, but the intellectual responsibility of every person that hears this message to wrestle with this question. Who is he? Because Jesus is claiming, by accepting this title, to be the most significant person in the history of the world. To be the promised one who will bring God's restoration in the world. Um, And how can you intellectually let a claim like that simply not matter? So apathy is not allowed here. Um, you, you can't just not care. It's, it's intellectually and even spiritually irresponsible. You need to work to answer this question. You, you can't do nothing with it. And, and, and you cannot be content with just a public opinion. Okay, The public opinion 2,000 years ago of people that were with him all the time and around him and saw him was misguided. Whether he was the Christ or not, he certainly was not just a prophet. Uh, you shouldn't expect the public opinion today to be any more accurate than that. 
the Discovery Channel and your professors here and other folks, and even my opinion is not adequate enough for you to base your answer. You need to do some serious inquiry and wrestling. Who do you say Jesus is? And, and be realistic about it. His men followed him for maybe years. It's a process. Be realistic with the fact that you might be partially blind or completely blind to this, that you just don't know. That's okay. Be honest about it. But just don't, don't do nothing about it. Yeah. Well, uh, Jesus, Peter has confessed Jesus to be the Messiah. Uh, Jesus has begun to correct his vision. Yes, I am the king, but I'm a different kind of king than you imagine. I'm a suffering king. And that leads to confrontation. It leads to confrontation over why does Jesus have to die. In verse 32, after uh, Jesus has begun to explain this, the text says he said this plainly. It's very interesting. He meant, uh, he said it over and over. He said it clearly, and he was saying it fiercely. Like, (laughs) Jesus was debating this point. He was pressing this point home. I'm the son of man that must die. Uh, he was saying it fiercely. And uh, Peter takes him to task. He confronts him in verse 32. Uh, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. We've seen nothing like this so far in the gospel. Really won't see anything quite like this again. Uh, because there's going to be a rebuking contest going on in a minute. And you don't want to get into a rebuking contest with Jesus. Because he does everything well. Including rebuke. So you're not going to out-rebuke him. So we're going to see in a second. Um, but, but why the rebuke? Why is Peter in such a foul mood? And I, and I think we need to understand exactly, to some extent, the depth of the shock. Okay, These folks have waited for hundreds of years for the great king to come. Hundreds of years for the great king to come. And now he's here, supposedly. And his first act, once you've recognized him as king, is to say, oh, you need to die. I know I'm going to die soon. Very soon. Publicly in humiliation. Oh. No big deal. Um, this is not the way the story should go. And there are lots of movies that deal with this theme. The one that came immediately to mind was The Princess Bride. When uh, the story is going along, the little boy is being read to, and... Um, Wesley is dead, or nearly dead. For all we know, he's dead. Uh, the little boy interrupts his grandfather saying, Grandpa, Grandpa, wait, wait. Did Defensic mean he's dead? I mean, he didn't mean dead, did he? And Grandpa said nothing. Wesley's just faking it, right? Uh, do you want me to read this story or not? Who gets Humperdinck? You know, the son wants justice. Who, this, the story can't end this way. I don't understand. What do you mean? Who kills Prince Humperdinck? At the end of the book, at the end of the story, somebody's got to do it. Is it it Inigo? Who? Who gets Humperdinck? Grandfather says, nobody. Nobody kills him. He lives. What do you mean he lives? Grandpa, why'd you read me this story? Like, the indignation. Like, this is not the way the story should end. It's not supposed to be this way. And we know other stories that happen like this, too. I, I remember reading this, the first of this trilogy written by a local author back in St. Louis, where they spend the whole book building you up that this person of the epic is the great hero, the one to come. End of the book, he kills him off. Two more books to go. You just killed the hero. Well, I don't want to read the other two books. It doesn't sound right. 
This is the jarring disappointment of the unthinkable becoming reality. And unless you can wrap your head and heart around it a little bit, you won't understand Peter's actions. At least an ugly confrontation. Peter is saying, Jesus, it can't be this way. And Jesus' response is, get behind me, Satan. And uh, we'll look first at uh, man's plan, Peter's plan here. In verse 33, Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He's saying to Peter, Peter, you're thinking in purely fleshly human ways, divorced from all of God's word and ways and will. You're just thinking about what's best for you. And what Peter really wants is success. He wants success without any suffering. And uh, there, there are many possible reasons why Jesus calls Peter Satan. Like the fact that Satan was actually supernaturally at work at the moment, potentially. But I think really what we also see here is that Peter is doing the exact same thing to Jesus that Satan did at the beginning of Mark and in other Gospels. We didn't read it. But he's promising Jesus and tempting Jesus with the possibility of real success without any suffering. That's what, the, that's what the devil did. He came to him and said, I know exactly who you are. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. All you got to do is bow down to me. Success. No suffering. And Peter's saying, it, it doesn't have to be this way, Jesus. Why do you have to die? Jesus sees here not a friend encouraging him, following him, but someone that's a stumbling block that's tempting him, that's opposing God's will and God's way. And Jesus opposed it and says, uh, God actually has a plan. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. And that word must is important. It's a very short word in the original language. It's three letters, day, D-E-I. And it means divine necessity. This is God's plan. This is God's will. This is the way it's going to be. And and what we find happening here is uh, two unexpected people, roles and responsibilities are converging in Jesus at once. And uh, permit me to use the board. Um, We have in Jesus, the Messiah, all the promises of the great king. There are a bunch of them in scripture. 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 110, which we just read. Isaiah, chapter 9, and other chapters. But we have have another figure as well, and that's called the suffering servant. I'm not going to write that out. He's prominent in the book of Isaiah, especially in chapters 52 and 53. We get hints of him in other places, including Psalm 110, which is why I had to read Psalm 110. In Isaiah 52 and 53, we read uh, this about this suffering servant. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord's laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, it's important. It was the will of the Lord, it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The job of this suffering servant is to suffer and die for the sake of the sheep. The job of the king is to shepherd his sheep, to gather them and love them. 
People in the Old Testament never imagined that these were two different people. I mean, they never imagined they were the same person. They sort of just imagined them being the same, two different people. But what we have in Jesus is the reality that over time, we have a convergence of these two folks into one person, in the person of Jesus, who as the great king will be a suffering king. That's what he's saying here. His men expect a king to rule with sufferingless, complete uh, triumphalism. That's what we're looking for. And Jesus says, I am a king and I will rule, but I must suffer first. And uh, this is important for us for all kinds of reasons. Um, First of all, we don't get to tell Jesus what he's about. We don't. We We don't get to tell Jesus the kind of Jesus he is. We don't get to tell God the kind of God he is. And actually, we do it all the time. Um, we want to. We, we have a wonderful plan for our lives, and we want to tell Jesus about it and let him get behind and just sort of endorse us and bless it. That's really what we want. And we expect, especially us, success without suffering. We really do. We think this is the way God is. It's the way we are. Let's just trek along. And we simply assume God's going to bless our hopes and dreams and plans. But we're going to see, we see that because uh, Jesus is like this. We're going to talk about this text again when we come back. Jesus has to suffer before success. We've we got to follow in his ways, too. We're going to have to follow in his ways. Our tendency, all of us, whether you're a Christian or not, is to minimize Jesus. To make him, you know, he's a prophet. He's a good teacher. He tells me nice little wise things. Or... He's a priest. He died for me, but that's about it. Or he's a king. He sort of protects me when I'm in trouble and delivers me, but that's it. He's all three of these at once, and you're constantly minimizing those things in your own life and in your own heart. And Jesus won't have it. We see that in this text. He won't have it. He will not let you define who he is. You may not agree with who he is, but he will not let you define who he is and get along with your definition and to say, okay, I'll just do whatever you think. He's a king who's come to restore his sheep, including you, and it requires his death. There's a uh, this ploy in TV shows and movies called the Incognito King. It happens so often that they just called it this term, the Incognito King. It's whenever you have someone who's really significant in the film that seems to be completely insignificant. So a quintessential example would be Strider and The Lord of the Rings. He's just this strange dude that needs a haircut that rides a horse all the time. He couldn't be the king, could he? Then, of course, if you watch these things long enough, you're like, that dude's important. And what you have in Jesus is sort of like the incognito incognito king. Uh, he is a real king, and he doesn't look like it. And he's a king that suffers, and he doesn't look like it. And both these things are very, very important. He's a double incognito king who's a suffering servant, offers his life for his people, and he's a king that will wisely uh, shepherd you and rule you. Because this is what's necessary for you. We're not going to go into great detail about the rest of this. This is almost sort of a abrupt hiccup in the text. The implications of this are huge. We'll pick them up next time we get together. But before we do that, there is still a test to be done. How'd you do on this test? The question is, who is Jesus? Why do you have to die? Did you just were you just able to get a Sunday school answer to that? Uh, he's he's Jesus. He's the Christ because that's his last name. <laughs> no, afraid not, friends. That's not the way it works. Do you understand that he's a king? 
Do you understand that he's a suffering servant, a priest that offers not only a sacrifice, he offers himself as the sacrifice for you. Uh, do, do you see how perhaps you are the blind man in Bethsaida that has just a partial understanding, or maybe almost no understanding of who Jesus is? And uh, it, this is one of those tests that it's okay to admit you fail. Right? You don't want to fail this test for life. But you need to be, not, be honest about where you are in this thing. Uh, the good news is uh, the story's not over. You know, we get to keep marching on. You, you have this book. You can learn more about Jesus. You can learn about it from others. Um, and Jesus, over time, will correct you if you continue to pursue him. He will show you what he's like. But, but the, really, the encouragement is uh, this is not the most important exam. The most important exam is to realize that you will always fall far short of what God requires. And only one person can pass that exam, and that's Jesus, your king, who dies for you. He passes that exam perfectly for you to draw you close and make you his own. All right, let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for...